What is up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Rewired Soul Podcast. It's your host, Chris, and today I have a fantastic author. It is Annie Murphy Paul. All right, so I I would be surprised. I'd be surprised if you have not heard about her newest book, The Extended Mind. All right, like I I just like happened to come across it, but. I've seen everybody talking about it, so hopefully you've checked it out. And if you haven't, I'm going to link it down in the description like I always do. But anyways, it is such a good book. So like The Extended Mind, where we're talking about thinking outside of the brain. I'm like, what's this about? Like, I love books on thinking and decision making and all that kind of stuff just because, you know, I I say it all the time. Like, none of us want to you know, make dumb decisions, you know, we want to think and we want to be creative and we want to make the best decisions possible. So I love those books, but so much is just repeat information. I just hear the same studies over and over and some authors do better than others, you know, kind of, uh, you know, taking different angles or showing what this study showed and what we can kind of, uh, you know, take from it and stuff. But Annie's book, ooh, I read this thing and I binged it in like a day or a day and a half. I just could not stop. It was so good. So I'm so glad because Annie is such a busy woman and it's it's crazy how much she's doing. So I'm so glad I, I was able to snag her for a little bit of time and chat with her about the book because it's so great. And you'll hear us talk about it in this conversation. But with you know how much I love to learn and just my style of learning, I have always felt like this kind of weird case and stuff like that. And if nothing else, uh, this this book really helps you be like, oh, okay, my learning style kind of makes sense. It kind of makes sense why I do what I do and what works for me. And yeah, hopefully, you know, more parents, more teachers, more employers, all sorts of people pick up this book and kind of learn, you know, how, you know, the, the quote unquote extended mind works because there's so much value in this. And yeah, I just know personally as a parent, you know, I, I'm going to, you know, keep an eye out and what helps my son learn. And hopefully, you know, his teachers kind of, you know, get that and, you know, all of your kids and their teachers and all. But anyways, it's such a fantastic book and everybody's talking about it. So I really hope you check it out. Again, it will be linked down in the description below along with Annie's social media. So make sure you're following her. Um, but yeah, while you're down there, make sure you're following me as well over on Twitter and Instagram at The Rewired Soul because I'm always posting about upcoming episodes, books I'm reading and all that kind of stuff. All right. But anyways, that was a long enough intro. So without further ado, here's my conversation with the wonderful Annie Murphy Paul about her brand new book, The Extended Mind. Hello, Annie. How are you doing today? I'm good, Chris. How are you? I am so excited because we've been trying to do this for a while. And now (laughs) we are here to talk about your phenomenal book that I binged in like a day or two, The Extended Mm -hmm. Mind. So for those who have yet to read this fantastic book, can you kind of talk about what inspired you to write this book? Sure. Yeah. So I'm a journalist who covers research on uh, learning and cognition. And so I read pretty widely in across a bunch of fields about uh, research on how we can think better, how we can think more effectively, more intelligently. And I was finding a lot of uh, related research 
and looking for a way to pull it together. What the theme that I kept seeing was um, that our the thinking doesn't just happen in our brains, that we mm-hmm. do a lot of thinking with our bodies, with the spaces that we're in, with the other people that we're in contact with. And then I came across an article by two philosophers, Andy Clark and David Chalmers, called The Extended Mind. And mm. that and that they proposed exactly that, that the, the, the mind does not stop at the boundaries of the skull, that we think with our surroundings, with the, our body below the neck, you know, and with mm-hmm. our relationships with other people. And this to me was a really exciting idea, a really provocative idea. And so that became kind of the, the, uh, the overarching idea behind the book that I wrote. Yeah. So, so do me, a, do me a favor and, and kind of explain that to me, because that's where I got confused. Right. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of debate and like philosophical debate about yeah. the mind, but yeah. we, we, we perceive the mind as being inside the brain and the subtitle is the power of thinking outside the brain. So how are you defining, like, you know, when we're talking about the mind outside of the body, because doesn't, even if like, you know, we're, and we'll dive into some of these topics, but like walking and nature, these things that influence us, doesn't that just funnel back into the brain? How does that work? For sure. Yeah. I mean, the brain you could kind of think of the brain as like the orchestra conductor, who's like, Mm. you know, drawing in all these uh, you know, tapping this resource and then that resource, it all comes back through the brain for sure. And I'm not saying that the brain isn't important or that the brain isn't the central organ through which all these resources are passed, mm-hmm. but it's not the case that it's the brain alone that's mm. doing all our thinking. And, you know, the brain is this, it is amazing. It is incredible. You know, all those things that science writers like to say about it, but it's also really limited. The biological brain on its own you know, isn't that great at grappling with counterintuitive or abstract concepts? It's not that great at remembering information precisely. It's not mm-hmm. that great at paying attention over long periods of time, as we know, you know, yeah. so, so our brains on their own are going to let us down unless we transcend their limits by bringing in these other resources into the brain to sort of enhance and augment the brain's Mm. own abilities and to sort of allow it to overachieve yeah so so do you think it's kind of limiting us to just think of the brain as just this thing like in between our ears and like with with everything you talk about in the book when we go outside it kind of expands like what we know about you know remembering and intelligence and how we could do all these things better like it's not limiting it to just the things like just sitting around and just thinking like this you know what I mean yeah, the mind is much bigger than the brain. That is yeah. the, the that is the message of my book. And if you think about it this way, if you're limiting yourself to the brain, then you're sitting there at your desk. You're like, I just have to work <laughs> my brain to figure this out. I'm not going to get up until it's done. Yeah. And that's actually not a very effective way to tackle a problem. When you think about the, the mind being bigger than the brain, all of a sudden you have all these other options. Like you could go for a walk, mm-hmm. you could gesture, you could move your body, you could have a conversation or a debate or um a a teaching session with somebody else Mm. and all suddenly have all these other options for getting thinking done instead of just sitting there and working your brain, which, you know, can be very frustrating. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Like uh, the majority of your book, uh, because I'm an audio listener, like I I listen, like I go for morning walks, right? Like around my neighborhood, a couple miles and everything like that. And, and yeah, it helps me 
kind of retain and think and all all sorts of stuff because like you said like when we just kind of sit there like it feels it feels like we get stuck a mm. lot and and so some of some of this like I because I'm extremely interested in all this stuff too and how to think and you know all this because I just got really interested in human irrationality and just the weird stuff we do you know yeah um yeah. so I'm curious like how how would you define intelligence? That's something I'm really interested mm -hmm. in from just like mm -hmm. different people and their input, right? Yeah. Because there's so many different factors. Like, what do you look for? Like, how do you define like your own intelligence? Or if I'm like, I want to, like I was talking with David Robson about this. Like, if mm -hmm. I'm trying to find a business partner, how mm -hmm. do I know they're intelligent enough to get into bit? Mm -hmm. You know, like what should we look for in our own intelligence or the intelligence of others? Yeah. That's a good question because, you know, so often we regard intelligence as this sort of fixed lump of stuff that people have in their head that we can measure and rank and compare. Yeah. And to me, that's not a very useful way of thinking about intelligence. I'm a lot more interested in what does your intelligence allow you to do in the mm. world, you know? So to me, intelligence is about thinking that is effective, thinking that solves problems, thinking that creates new possibilities. Like that to me is intelligence, whether or not you're scoring well on a test or not, you know, yeah. because that to me is really a very unsatisfying proxy for intelligence mm -hmm. when what we really want to know is how effective is this person in the world at making productive things happen? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it, it feels like it's very subjective. And in a second, I want to talk about how we kind of like teach kids and what we could do to help kids learn better and all this stuff. But do you think that there are kind of like this kind of conventional wisdom around intelligence? Like what I always think about is, you know, when we look at like a doctor or a brain surgeon or something like that, we're like intelligent, right? A lot of mm -hmm. school, like, uh, mm -hmm. you know, uh, and all this, but, you know, a plumber can do something that like a surgeon can't, a, me mm -hmm. a car mechanic, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So do you think that, you know, on the on the broader conversation of how we view intelligence, like the conversation around that needs to kind of change and who we put into the box of intelligent and we focus on the wrong thing sometimes? I absolutely do. And I think we really unfairly discount um, the kind of intelligence in particular that comes with working with one's hands. And that's mm. a very old bias in our culture that says that, you know, mental work is superior in some way to the kind of work that we do with our bodies because mm. we have this mind body split. But, you know, part of what I wanted to do with my book is to say, no, actually thinking is a full body experience. You know, we think with our bodies and when we cut that off and we say that, no, thinking is only what happens up here we're actually really missing out on a lot of what makes humans so intelligent, so effective, so productive in the world. And I, mm -hmm. I'd love to see that bias challenged and overcome. Yeah, yeah, that's something, yeah, I, I, I try to think about a lot because it, it feels like we put a lot of infinite, like, uh, or, uh, emphasis on, you know, like college and traditional education, which I think is extremely important. Like, for example, my, my girlfriend, she's in her master's program for social work and like mm -hmm. she needs the schooling. Like she's gonna be working with mm -hmm. people, you need licensing and all of this. But sometimes it feels like we put too much emphasis on it mm -hmm. where there's someone who's like, you know, uh, has a certain, trade that they've been developing their whole life that right. they wouldn't really learn in a school but yeah so on the on the topic of schools I you know I'm the father of a 12 year old kid so I'm always thinking about you know just him and his education and every guest I have on here I was talking with somebody yesterday every guest I have on here like there's different ideas for what we should do with schools right mm -hmm. and 
on the topic of intelligence, it feels like, you know, the school system, even since I was a kid, there's a huge emphasis on memory. Mm-hmm. Right. So mm-hmm. you sit and and I'm sure you dealt with this while you're in college, like you'll study all night cramming. Mm-hmm. What do you memorize? And, you know, like and I remember just history classes and dates and all these other things. And I'm like, who cares? So like, when it comes mm-hmm. to memory, mm-hmm. I know you talk a lot about things that can improve our memory. But mm-hmm. what do you think the correlation is between memory and recalling facts like a Jeopardy champion who remembers all these like random things right. and just the other ways we we kind of been talking about intelligence how important do you think memory and memorization is yeah well in conventional schooling there has been a huge emphasis on rote memorization and i think the research is pretty clear that that is is a limited way to learn it doesn't promote the kind of higher thinking deeper thinking that we want our students to develop at the same time i'm not one of those people who says oh, now that we have Google, we don't have to know anything. (laughs) We can just look it up, you know? And I always, the example that I use to show to me the fallacy of that is to say, okay, you can one at a time look up in Google Translate the word in another language that you're trying to say, but if, does that mean you can now speak that language? You know, no, you actually need to know those Mm. words, know the grammar, and you need to have lots and lots of practice in speaking that language before you could ever say that you're fluent. And there's something similar going on with um, becoming an expert in any field is that experts both have a lot of knowledge committed to memory, and they also have the skills and the sort of um, in the moment ability to to work with that information and apply it in flexible ways. Mm. So, um, you know, drill drills and rote memorization without any deeper meaning behind it are definitely not a good way to learn, but it's, it's, we're, we're, it's not at all the case that we don't need to know anything anymore because it's all in the cloud. Yeah. So it's, it's kind of like this balance, right? Like mm-hmm. being able to remember, but also have this kind of practical application for it and all that. Yeah, no, mm-hmm. that definitely, that definitely makes sense. And I, I'm curious your thoughts too. So like, uh, I come from like, you know, a mental health background and, you know, uh, that's a whole different conversation is, you know, the rise in ADHD diagnoses with children and stuff. But so much of your book talks about like movement and even mm-hmm. talking with your hands and gestures and everything. And something, you know, that uh, that's becoming more part of the conversation is, you know, there's this idea in school that kids need to sit still, learn, right, sit in their desk, you know, they have their free time, they have like, the, you know, their playground time, the recess, but do you do you think or do you have a hope or anything like that for for schools to become a little bit less rigid with how structured it is and if there is a kid who learns better through movement or something like that like do you have any thoughts on what Mm -hmm. schools in particular like I don't know just specifically like elementary and middle school for younger kids might be able to do without driving other kids in the classroom and (laughs) saying yeah yeah well there still is this idea out there this notion that in order to do real thinking, you should be sitting still, you know? Mm-hmm. And the idea is that a, a good classroom, an effective classroom is one where students are sitting still at their desks. And I, I do think that that's changing, that people are realizing that for one thing, it consumes mental bandwidth to actually inhibit that urge to move. So that's, mm. you know, that much less brain power that you don't have to apply, that students don't have to apply to their work. Um, so I do think you're right that there needs to be some serious thought given to how do we allow for movement in the classroom without making it disruptive for other students. Mm-hmm. Um, 
but there are definitely ways to incorporate movement even into the learning of academic material itself so that it's not um, something that happens on the edges. It's actually an integral part of the, of the learning. And that, that mm -hmm. is, you know, in a way killing a few birds with one stone because you're getting that movement, you're getting that alertness that comes with physical activity. And you're also tapping that embodied cognition wherein we remember things better, we pay attention better, we understand things better when we've connected them to bodily movement. Yeah, and, and that makes me curious about this. So as, as you know, many people know, I, I just plow through books. I've read like, I'm on like 235 of the year, right? And mm -hmm. I only do audiobooks because mm -hmm. I can't just sit with a book. It drives me insane. So like I mentioned, I listen while I'm walking uh, this morning before we even have this conversation. I'll play video games while I'm listening to books. I'll, you know, be uh, playing like little apps on my phone. But anyways, there's, you know, like stuff that's come out like, you know, fidget spinners or little fidget cubes and all that. And I'm not, I can't remember if you discussed this in the book, but is there any research around like doing something as we're learning because I like when I, when I just sit still, I can't retain anything. I'm not yeah. paying attention. My mind wanders, but if I'm playing a video game, I could play a video mm -hmm. game for like two hours and listen to half a book. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? So, mm -hmm. so what, what, what's the research say around that stuff? Is it, is it helpful or I don't know. For, for many people, it is helpful. I, I do write in the book about fidgeting. And mm. again, there's a, um, a social, um, bias against, you know, against fidgeting. We have this idea that it means someone's not paying attention or yeah. they're, um, they're jittery or kind of, they need to calm down or stop moving. And actually what fidgeting is, is this very fine grained way of modulating our arousal, our physiological mm. arousal. It's like, it's just, it's not that different from drinking a cup of coffee so that you can pay attention. You're kind of giving yourself ah some stimulation. It's just stimulation of a physical motor kind and fidgeting allows you to precisely kind of modulate the level of, of, of stimulation that you're getting that is ideal for your brain and how you pay attention. So lots of kids and lots of adults need to move in order to learn. Yeah. And that's, that's an accommodation or an understanding that we really need to incorporate into education and the workplace, I think. Yeah, it's it's something I'm, you know, trying to be mindful of with my son, because like you like you mentioned, there's this kind of like, I don't, I don't even know if stigma is the right word, but like, if you're doing mm -hmm. something else, you're not paying attention, right. and it's something that I've always done. And like, one of my mm -hmm. favorite things is just kind of like a little sassy thing is when someone thinks I wasn't paying attention, because I was doing something mm -hmm. else, and I can mm -hmm. repeat like verbatim, what they mm -hmm. said. like, mm -hmm. no, I was I was just doing other stuff, you know? Right. And uh, yeah, it's fun messing with my girlfriend about that, but she's kind of seeing that I can retain information, even though it seems like I'm doing something else. And, like, and not even, even though, because you're doing uh, it, it sounds like, I mean, you really need to have that other thing going on. It sounds like to, to tune in fully to the second thing. Yeah. So, and, and that's, you know, that's, that's the whole thing. Cause uh, you know, I have some guests coming on this week, just talking about uh, mental health and mental illness and stuff like that. And, you know, um, it, it feels like, I don't know, just on, on the larger conversation. That's what I love about your book is like all of us, parents, teachers, employers, all of us need to kind of start 
destigmatizing, you know, movement or distraction or, you know, cause you talk mm -hmm. about even standing desks and stuff like mm -hmm. that. Like I remember, I remember when standing desks first came out mm -hmm. or even like the treadmill desk. I'm like, what a pretentious, like, <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, but, yeah. but through reading your book, I was like, mm -hmm. oh, okay. Like it's just people's different learning styles and what works for them. And that brings me to my next question. Through all your research on this book, like you, you went in there and you read a bajillion studies I and, did. and I'm sure there's some stuff that you took away from it. Like what is, what are your favorite little tricks or tools that have helped you like with your work now, like yeah. and helping your thinking? Yeah. Well, you're right. I did read exactly a bajillion studies. <laughs> <laughs> it felt like a bajillion is about the right number, but, um, and in order to, um, you know, keep all those studies in mind and draw all the conclusions that I needed from those studies, I really had to do what I write about in the book as cognitive offloading. The, you know, we try to do too many things in our heads. We don't, mm. and when really it's so much more effective and helpful to offload the contents of our minds onto physical space in some way, you know, whether that's a, a big whiteboard or a bunch of post-it notes, that is my, my favorite mode actually is like, um, putting a thought or a fact on, on one each, on each post-it note, and then being able to move around those, those post-it notes, being able to, um, navigate through them, you know, like kind of remember like, oh yeah, this one was over here. You're mm. like employing your spatial memory, like, and all of those resources are lost when you're just sitting there trying to think, do it all inside your head, you know? So for mm -hmm. me, cognitive offloading in the sense of like, okay, I really need to get all of this out of my head and onto paper or onto post-it notes or onto a bulletin board. Those that, that really works for me. Yeah. Okay. All right. So now, now I, I need a little advice from you. So as I <laughs> yeah. mentioned, yeah, like I, I read a ton and I read on just a diverse range of subjects. Like this morning I was reading one about just like prison reform. And then I was mm. reading a book from like uh, Bruce Hood about, you know, the idea of self and all these other things. Right? So I'm bouncing around from topic to topic and I'm not even a thousand percent sure why I do it or what I'm using it for, aside from having these lovely conversations with people mm -hmm. like you, Annie, but I'm, mm -hmm. I'm curious because, you know, I take notes as I listen to my books because the Audible app or the other apps I use, I could take notes so I can come back and interviews and all that. But uh -huh. Uh, for example, I, I've been trying to get back into my own writing lately because as I'm listening, you know, I'm getting ideas and I want to have conversations about some of the topics from the book. So I'm wondering, like, how do I cognitively offload? Like, uh -huh. it, maybe I should try your strategy with like mm -hmm. post-it notes all over, but mm -hmm. I don't know if mm -hmm. I need a special room that's just like blank mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> or what, like, what would you, what would you tell mm -hmm. a guy like me? Well, since you do seem to respond so well to audio, I wonder if you could use the note-taking app on your phone and record your thoughts as you speak them. Maybe that, and then you could listen to them. Mm. I wonder if that would be helpful to you because, um, you know, we tend to, it's part of our brain-centric um, bias in society that we really overvalue written, written language and symbols, mm. you know, um, because those seem more abstract or elevated or intellectual, but yeah. actually, you know, the more of your senses that you can draw into your thinking, the better you'll remember things and the more um, thoroughly you'll grasp things. So it might be that hearing your own words um, as you speak them and maybe as you play them back later could yeah. be helpful for you. Yeah. Well, you know, what's really interesting, Annie, that you bring that up is lately since I started the podcast, 
before I post and I go back and do my editing, re-listening to it, it's a brand yes. new experience because when yes. I'm in the conversation, you know, I'm thinking about, you know, what you're saying, how do I ask the next question? I'm thinking about the audience, I'm thinking about you and all this. But when I get to just sit back and listen to how I responded and, you know, what, what you say and all that, that is really helpful. So I, I might, I might try that and then I'll, yeah. I'll keep, <laughs> yeah, I'll keep yeah. you posted on it. You know, there's a science of learning um, finding behind that too, which is that you're, when you encounter the same material repeatedly, but it, at spaced out intervals, you know, that really helps you remember it and understand it better. So you, in a way you're, you're doing that just by, you know, formulating the questions, then having the interview, then, then editing mm -hmm. the interview, you're having these repeated exposures to the same material. That's really helping you yeah. understand and digest the material. You know, Annie, I think the reason I wanted you on so much is so you can help me. You can help me because I felt crazy when I, when people mm -hmm. find out how many books I listen to, mm -hmm. you know, first off, it's like, well, that's not really reading, you know, because like you said, uh, we put this emphasis on, you know, and I'm just like, well, what's the point of reading? It's to get new information. So no matter what it is, you yeah. know what I mean? Like, yeah. are we going to say, you know, like these other things aren't technically learning, but, but right. the other one is the other question I get is, are you even retaining in any of the information? Mm -hmm. But I actually mm -hmm. read books like yours. And I don't know if you've ever read that book, um, make it stick, but it's about oh. like, I love that book. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That's where I first heard about recalling the information. Mm -hmm. Like when you set up a little gap and then you bring it back, like that's yes. what's important to me. And that's why I like writing about what I've learned or before this, I was doing YouTube videos where I would teach people. Like, that's why I love teaching people because it's really helping me by recalling the information and putting it into practice. So, so when I talk with you, Annie, I feel seen and I feel understood. So I might just, <laughs> I'm just so glad, hit, I might hit you up for just some therapeutic value every now and then. <laughs> no, you know, that has been the overwhelming response to my book. And it was not one that I expected, but it's people saying, oh my gosh, I found my way to a lot of these techniques already, but I didn't know why they worked. I didn't know yeah. the scientific rationale for why they worked. And I'm so glad you validated for me what I already find works for me. Yeah. And it helps me just hearing that other people are having that experience. You know what I mean? There's so many things that just, again, just seem like conventional wisdom or just set into our cultural norms. And, you know, that's why I love like all, all the advances in research. Cause we find like, Hey, maybe, maybe that's not the case. And something else uh, that I've been talking with a lot of people about is just having conversations and everything. And mm -hmm. I recently had Amanda Ripley on for her book, mm -hmm. High Conflict. Mm -hmm. And it seems like conflict, like I'm somebody who shied away from conflict. I hate conflict and mm -hmm. all this, but you know, you, you sell me and everybody else who reads the book on the, why we need to collaborate and work together. So for example, one of the one of the things you talk about is this idea of constructive controversy and some of the research mm -hmm. and how it gets students more engaged. So can you kind of explain that real quick and how that's beneficial, this constructive controversy? Yes. Yeah. Emphasis on constructive, right? Because there's <laughs> certainly a lot of controversy out there that's not constructive and not, not helping anybody. But yeah, so the idea there is that... Um, you know, say you're watching a movie or uh, reading a novel, if that novel or movie didn't have any conflict in it, if there wasn't mm. something, somebody, something, something somebody wanted, but couldn't get, or like, you know, some kind of journey or some kind of challenge, it would be totally boring. And you would just be like, forget this. This is, I'm not going to spend my time on this. And yet 
we expect students and people in the workplace mm. to, to attend to information that is totally drained of any kind of human conflict or, you know, um, uh, interest really, because we're like, well, this is how it is. A, B, C, D, just learn this, you know, and it's really, it just, um, no wonder people tune out, no wonder people aren't engaged, not motivated. So in almost every kind of scenario or situation, there is a conflict. There's, there's, um, you know, a challenge that needs to be overcome or a difference of opinion that can be explored. And so the idea behind constructive controversy is don't leave that out, you know, bring that back into the material mm. that people are learning. That's what makes people interested and engaged. And it makes, it's what makes them want to know more and find out more. So, you know, for the, the same kind of motivations that lead us to pay attention to things in our free time, you know, to mm -hmm. movies or, or books, um, we can bring those, use those same techniques to get people involved in what they need to learn for school or for their jobs. Yeah. So here's what I'm curious about. And I'm not sure if you've run into this. Maybe, maybe I'm, I'm, a, I'm sure you have. So I, I am always trying to think of all angles of arguments or ideas and thoughts and stuff like that. Even if I 100% agree with somebody, I try to think of a counterpoint just to get a deeper understanding. You know what I mean? Even if it's for my own benefits. But here's my, here's my concern, right? For this constructive controversy that I'm just gonna come off like this weird contrarian, right? <laughs> Where I'm just like, just challenging everything. But, but I feel like that's the best way for not only for me to understand, but for the other person to even start thinking about their own beliefs and thoughts and ideas mm -hmm, and stuff like mm -hmm, that. Mm -hmm. um, I think what I've noticed is like, and I, I'm, this is where I'm wondering if you've run into this, we, a lot of us get instantly defensive, right? Mm -hmm. When you just, it feels like sometimes when we're just asking a question, mm -hmm. we feel challenged, our ego defensives just go up. Mm -hmm. So is that more of a us problem or mm -hmm. do we need to start talking about this together? I, I'm not sure. Hmm. Hmm. Well, I think, um, you know, as you say, people, when they feel like they're being, uh, maybe their credibility is being questioned mm -hmm. or um, their values are being questioned that that will bring up people's defenses. But I think there's a way to kind of put a problem or a challenge or an issue in a space between two people and say, let's look at this together. You know, let's look at it from, let's move around it. Let's look around it. Let's look at it from every angle so mm -hmm. that it's really the, the question or the issue becomes the thing that you both are looking at together and trying to work out in terms of getting closer to, to a shared truth, you know, um, mm -hmm. rather than this is a battle between you and me over who's right and who's wrong. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Just, just even this morning, uh, you know, someone was disagreeing with me. It was, it was on Twitter and I keep learning that, you know, the internet is a terrible, mm -hmm. but I, what I try to do is say, Hey, shoot me an email. Let's have like mm -hmm. a one-on-one -on -one kind of discussion. So, yeah. so, when it comes to thinking in groups, like I, I know, I know, like I need other people around to challenge my thinking and everything like that. But in this age of like polarization and we see tribalism everywhere, my biggest fear, Annie, is groupthink and conformity, mm -hmm. right? Yeah, yeah. So where, where do we find that balance where, you mm -hmm. know, obviously we're encouraging people like, hey, don't think by yourself, think with others. But yeah, like, how does a group even know when they're stuck in this echo chamber of confirmation bias and, and all that? Like, how, yeah. do we, how do we keep an eye out for that? That is a really important question, Chris. And I'm not sure that I have 
the answer to it, except that I would say that a lot of the way that groupthink happens is that it's led by a leader. You know, mm. there a leader expresses his views and everybody else in the room has an incentive, a motivation to agree with that leader, to support his point of view. And that's a lot of how groupthink happens. And so one way around that is to have the leader not go first, you know, and to actually to find ways to solicit mm. and welcome in the views of other people, especially those who might shy shy away from speaking or who might have less stat, less status, less education, you know, less um, experience. Those people's perspectives are valuable too. And sometimes, you know, my, my view in general about group dynamics is that they're not, we don't think intentionally enough about how to structure group interactions. We tend to yeah. throw a bunch of people together in a conference room and be like, okay, talk, you know, yeah. and what happens inevitably are like these dynamics where the, everyone looks to the leader, everyone starts parroting what he says. We need to be a lot more thoughtful and intentional about structuring our interactions so that we are really deliberately making sure we hear from everybody in the group and that the leader's influence is not undue influence such that, you know, everyone else's voices get silenced. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I forgot which organization it was, but maybe it was, uh, Warren Buffett or something, but they, they like somebody's job is just devil's advocate. Right? Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. So nobody can, nobody's allowed to judge them or get mad, yeah. but no matter what the meeting is, they, their job is to just bring up the counterpoint. And I've heard people, you know, like Annie Duke, where they talk about like, you know, the, the, the pre-mortem and stuff, right, you know, right. all these ideas, like what is the worst second, you know, like, I think it's important right. to, but yeah, kind of like with what you're saying, like with the structure, like you have to foster this because I immediately think like, uh, you know, you discuss this in the book is there's these uh, prejudice issues and biases, and there might be people where you do structure it, but they feel like if they vocalize that, Mm -hmm. there might be some kind of backlash or, or, right. you know, whatever. So I, yeah, it's almost like there's this kind of layered approach. You have to create the environment with the structure and right, all that. Right. Oh. Imagine being, imagine being that devil's advocate guy, you know, even though everyone knows it's your role or everyone kind of hates that guy. Right. Yeah. They don't invite him to hang out and stuff like that. <laughs> um, right. I only, I only have a couple more quick, quick, quick questions for you. I wanted to talk with you real quick about experts. Um, mm -hmm. cause you, you, you have a chapter about thinking with experts and it is literally one of the most important things in my life because as a recovering drug addict and alcoholic, I was taught to learn from other people who, mm -hmm. who have done this before. Right. And right, in 12 right. step programs, you get, you know, uh, a sponsor and all sorts of stuff. Right. But on the other side of it, I, uh, a while back became obsessed with the work of Philip Tetlock, mm. where <laughs> we find out that experts don't, aren't always the best. So, right, right. so one of my last questions for you is how, how would you recommend that we, we vet an expert when we're thinking with an expert and learning from them or like finding a mentor or whoever, yeah. whoever yeah. it is, right? Yeah. Like, for example, I asked you for some advice earlier about how I can better, you know, structure my thoughts around right. all this information. How do I vet you? How do I know Annie's the real deal? <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> well, <laughs> I mean, my, my emphasis in the book is actually less on distinguishing among experts and mm. pointing out that an expert by virtue of being an expert is not, uh, is often not able to articulate what they know because 
the, the, on the path to becoming an expert, their knowledge and their skill and their expertise has become automatized. Like that's why they're able to do things mm. so effortlessly and easily because they're not even really thinking about it anymore. It's like second nature to them. So then when a novice comes to them and says, how do I do this thing that you do? It's actually very hard for them, an expert to explain how they do what they do because they no longer have conscious access to that. Yeah. So my, my point about learning with experts is that we need to find ways to break down an expert's expertise, mm, to allow okay. them to remember what it was like to be a novice, to put themselves in the, in the beginner's shoes and say, oh, okay, this is, you know, I, I, I know how to do this so well that, um, but I know you don't know how to do it so well. So let me break it down for you. And that's yeah. um, something that we don't, because our systems of education and workplace training rely so much on experts teaching novices, which makes sense in a way, but there's a built-in problem with an expert teaching a novice. And one more thing I'll say about that is that that's one reason that someone who's closer to a peer to you, like maybe per someone who's just one mm. step beyond you is often a really excellent way to learn because they, they have more knowledge than you do, but they remember what it was like to be a novice. And I think that's part of the yeah. strength of those um, AA type um, models where you have somebody who can really, you know, had, had really recent experience with what you're going through, but is a few steps beyond where you are. Yeah. Annie, you just worded that so perfectly. Cause it made me remember like, you know, when I, when I first got sober and they're like, look at people who have like 20 years sober and I was yeah. trying to stay sober for like 20 days. Right, so I saw right. people who had 30, 60, 90 days. I'm like, okay, what are they doing? How'd you reach that point? Right. You know, but you know, the last thing I'll say about that is like, now that I have nine years, it's something that I'm regularly trying to do when, you know, uh, somebody reaches out and says, Hey, I have a friend or a family member who's struggling and stuff. Cause my instant reaction is like, Hey, dummy, just quit doing drugs. You know what I mean? But I have to get back into that beginner's. Place. It was hard, right? Yeah. yeah. No, you <laughs> have to remember it was hard. Yeah. yeah. And, yeah, and yeah. even as a, even as a father, when I'm teaching my son stuff, you know, I want to expect he's 12 years old. I want to expect him that he has the, the life mm -hmm. knowledge of a 36 year old man right. and all that. Um, right. But, but yeah, so my last, my last question for you is I'm always curious about that. When you were writing this book, who, who do you hope gets this book, reads it? Like, is it, is it like companies? Is it people trying to work their way up the corporate ladder? Is it teachers and parents so they could better help kids? Is it mm -hmm. people who just like learning about weird stuff? Like who, who's in your mind as you're writing What's what's your target audience? And I know um, I I hope everybody gets it, but <laughs> right, like, right. who do you who do you hope? Every author feels like well, everybody should read it. Yeah. Um, you know, I have a special place in my heart for teachers because mm. I just I think they do the most important work in the world, and they're not as appreciated by our society as they should be, not as rewarded for the incredibly hard work they do, and. Mm -hmm. It's been really gratifying to me to see the response of teachers to this book because um, they think about this stuff a lot. They think a lot about how do I get this information yeah. into my kids' heads? How do I help a whole bunch of diverse learners, you know, ma master this material? And so if my book can help them give them some new approaches and some new ways of thinking about learning, like then I feel like I've done my job. Yeah, no, no, absolutely. I, I come from a family of teachers. Maybe that's why I like teaching people <laughs> through all sure. this stuff. But, sure. but yeah, ab absolutely. So, so Annie, I appreciate you coming on so much. So for Thanks, everybody yes. out there, where 
where can they get the book and how do they keep up with you and upcoming projects? Because this isn't your only book. And I'm sure after a little bit of a break, you might get back to work. So where can people follow you and stay up to date? Yeah. So you can get the book anywhere, you know, Amazon and all the others. Um, But uh, to talk, to be in touch with me, I'm on Twitter, which is where you found me, Chris, and at Annie Murphy Paul, uh, at Annie Murphy Paul. And I have a website www.anniemurphypaul.com where I post the stuff that I write and that's another good place to reach me. Beautiful. Yeah, and I'll link all that down in the description. So yeah, Annie, I appreciate it so much and I'm so glad we were able to finally connect. So thank you so much for coming on. You too, Chris. Oh, you're so welcome. This was really fun. Awesome. We'll do it again sometime. (laughs) Okay, yeah, when that next book comes out. (laughs) (laughs) All right, everybody, there you have it. There was my conversation with Annie Murphy-Paul about her new book, The Extended Mind. And I hope you all enjoyed it. And if you haven't yet, make sure you grab a copy of this book. I can't think of anybody on this planet who would not benefit from this book. And after I read this, I was like, okay, well, now I got to go read some of Annie's other books. So she does have other books. We didn't even mention it, but she dove into kind of uh, like personality studies and research and all that kind of stuff and debunk some of the stuff from Myers-Briggs. And I love that stuff. So I'm going to check that out too. But anyways, check down in the description below. Make sure you're following Annie over on Twitter. Grab a copy of The Extended Mind. I will link some of her other books down below as well. And while you're down there, make sure you are following me over at The Rewired Soul on Instagram and Twitter so you don't miss any upcoming episodes and all that good stuff. All right. But if you're new here, if you enjoyed this, if you enjoy what I'm doing, if you like to talk about interesting subjects with a bunch of different authors who are experts in a variety of different areas, make sure you're following the podcast. Subscribe if you're on Apple. And what really helps out too is if you leave a rating and a review if you're over on Apple. And it would also help Chris out, which is me, if you shared this. All that stuff is just to help grow the podcast, reach more people so we can build this lovely little community we got going on. All right. But yeah, other than that, for those of you who want to support the podcast in any way, there are some links down below. Some of you know I have self-published my own books. Uh, Some of them are about mental health, addiction recovery, my personal story, all that stuff. Those are available at TheRewiredSoul.com. You can become a patron. And there is also an affiliate link down below for BetterHelp Online Therapy. Uh, Mental health is a huge, huge part of my life. I have personally used BetterHelp. So if you want some affordable therapy online from the comfort of your own home, check out that affiliate link down below for BetterHelp. All right. But anyways, I, I really, really, really appreciate Andy coming on. And I hope you all enjoyed this episode. And yeah, have a wonderful rest of your day. And next week, I'll be back with some more conversations with some great authors. Next week, next week's exciting because there's like a bunch of new books coming out and I managed to talk with the authors and read their books before they came out. So a bunch of cool like launch week type stuff is coming next week. So make sure that you stay tuned. And if you don't want to miss it, make sure you're following me. All right. But yeah, again, have an awesome rest of your day and I'll talk to you next time.